Welcome to the Yemzanika podcast, where we explore the fabric of black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences and more, sharing the stories of international creatives. I'm Kamara. Hi everyone, I'm Heather and we are your co-hosts. Thank you to those of you coming back to the table and of course, welcome to our new listeners. We have a great show planned for you. As always, we're going to start off with our appetizer and after that, we'll bring our guests to the table. So let's jump into it. So for today's topic, we wanted to talk about connecting with your heritage. Um, and I guess I'll just start with an experience that I've had with connecting with my own heritage. As you, our listeners will know, my family is Jamaican, but I was born in Papua New Guinea. I grew up in Sydney, Australia, and now I live in London. Um, so for me, connecting with my heritage is really something that I have a memorable memory about when I went to Papua New Guinea. For my 40th birthday, my mum arranged a trip back to Australia and also to Papua New Guinea. And that was the first time I'd been there since I was a child. So I was there from when I was born to age three, and then we moved to Sydney, Australia. So I was there just after my 40th birthday. And It was just so unbelievable. First of all, um, the people there are so friendly and welcoming and they call you sister. So as soon as they found out that I was born there, it was as if I was, you know, coming home. Mm. And, um, yeah, it was just so warm and welcoming. They called me sister. They told everybody that, you know, this is, this is, you know, I was born in Papua New Guinea, like very <laughs> proud. They're very proud of me because, you know, the indigenous people of Papua New Guinea, um, they're black there. So, you know, I guess I felt a kindred energy with, with the people, mm-hmm. um, of Papua New Guinea. Um, I went back to the hospital where I was born and it was just a really incredible experience. Um, yeah, so that for me was such um, an important part of connecting my heritage, even though, um, you know, it's not Jamaica, but it's definitely integral to, to my story. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how I felt when I went there really felt a sense of belonging. And I guess that's that's what it is when you learn about your heritage. You, you get that sense of belonging. You learn about yourself. You learn a bit more about where you are because, you know, sometimes, especially being from everywhere, not from everywhere, but from more than one place, sometimes you feel like you're not from any of those places, which I know we've spoken about before as well. Mm-hmm. Um, being in Papua New Guinea, I really felt that sense of belonging, which was um, just a really beautiful experience. So have you had that before where you've really been somewhere you've, where you felt a sense of belonging and connected to your heritage? Um, A long time ago. So I've not lived in Atlanta for a very long time. It's now been uh, 17 years. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's been 17 years since I've lived back home. And every time, well, and I was still living in the States, every time I would go back to Atlanta, I would feel like I was back at home. Mm-hmm. But I feel like my most recent trip, which was three years ago, um, I did have an inkling of like 
this is home, but only when I'm with my friends and family, but it's not home when I'm just like in the city by myself. Mm-hmm. So when I went back to Philly in 2020, that definitely didn't feel out like home where that was once home for like four years. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like a complete stranger, even though everything was still pretty much in the same place. Mm-hmm. The energy, I just really was disconnected. And then when I went home to Atlanta, I got, I would get lost in my own city. Like the last few times I've gone home mm-hmm. and my family is still there. My friends are still there, but the city just doesn't feel like mine as much mm-hmm. until I hear certain things that remind me of the old times when I was there. So I do feel I'm in that space of like not feeling like I belong. Cause I don't feel like I belong so much in London mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually, I've actually charged myself to do my own ancestral discovery, figure out where my roots are mm-hmm. and specifically, um, in Africa. And I want to, at least for my 35th, hopefully my 35th birthday, I can actually travel to that, to one of those countries or wherever that I, I have roots in, because I do feel a bit like I don't have a home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You know, I, I feel a bit scattered right now. A thing that I, I feel grateful that I have is Avery, who actually knows exactly where she's from. Like right. she's in that age where, you know, they've learned about continents at school. They have a little continent song. And she's really happy to know that she's from North America, to know that she's from Europe, to know that she's from... Africa and to know specifically where those places are. Like she knows Atlanta, she knows London, she knows Ghana, Mm -hmm. you know, and specifically just outside of Accra. So like she gets those, she gets to be really rooted and connected to her cultures and she gets to have that identity. Whereas I feel a a bit like scattered. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm happy that I can share some of the things that I know, which is that, you know, you definitely have roots in Atlanta and in the South in, mm-hmm. in the States and what that culture is made up of. But there's part of me that wants some of that similar like confidence in knowing like this is where my, my bloodline comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I guess just doing that extra research will help you make those connections and maybe um, find, find that place where you resonate with. Yeah. Yeah. Because I yeah. definitely experience the same as what you've described. You know, you go to a place, just kind of what I mentioned. You go, you've, you're from lots of places, but you're from no places. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes, which is a, a strange feeling, especially for me. You know, when I go back to Sydney, my friends introduce me as their British friend. And yeah, I'm like, I'm, I'm not British. <laughs> like, I'm from here. And they're like, mm, okay. And then when you're in England, they're like, well, where's your accent from? Um, like Australian, oh, you don't sound Australian and just, you know, always from everywhere, from nowhere. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah. So, no, I totally understand that. Um, And is there something that you feel that connect, what do you think is something that connects you to a place? What makes you from a place or feel more connected to a place? Well, I know that for me in the past where I've felt really, really connected, there are certain cultures that I've felt particularly really connected even before I've journeyed to those places. So for one example, it was um, the first place for me was Italy. And I don't know why, but 
I really wanted to like, I really felt a connection there. I really wanted to be there and actually spend a summer there. And when I got there, it was just the food, the smell of the place, the, and I was in like a little beach town in Northern Tuscany. Um, and it was also just the way of life. So I think it has something to do with, with those sort of elements that make up a culture. Mm -hmm. Um, and just the community feel, um, another place that I've really connected with, um, is Japan. Never been there, <laughs> but there are certain like ways of life. I actually just read this book called Ikigai, um, which talks about living a long and happy life and about mm-hmm. finding your purpose and what's going to keep you going and that perfect balance of, of happiness and health and, and purpose. But there's a lot of principles from Japanese culture like wabi-sabi, and a key guy and other things that I really resonate with. And it, they really, um, they appreciate life's imperfections in a lot of their sort of like, in, in a lot of their cultures. And, and they also appreciate the simplicity of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they find beauty in that. Um, yeah. So there's certain things like that, like ways of life, culture, like food, music. So I have another another um, place that really resonates, which I'm hoping that I have roots in, is South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I've found that all of the music, all of the TV shows that I've watched that are based there, the people, um, yeah, something about it. I'm just, the, the fashion, I'm just really, really drawn to it more than any other African culture that, mm-hmm. I've, that I've experienced thus far. I haven't experienced them all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I've experienced a handful and of of them all, that's the one that I just feel really like, I hope that's my home. <laughs> mm-hmm. But if it's not, that's okay. Um, but yeah, I think those are those are it, like those integral things that you can identify a place mm-hmm. or a culture is what really draws me in. So yeah. I'm I'm excited as I go on this journey, I'm excited to see what foods and music and, you know, lifestyles and principles and values that I find within those, within those cultures. Yeah, definitely. You have to keep us posted on your discoveries. I will. And, um, and your learnings about your heritage so that we can share it with our listeners. And I think, um, that's a good, place to finish to think about where we belong what connects us what what connects us to our heritage and what makes us feel um as part of a part of a culture and community Mm -hmm. yeah definitely all right we're going to take a break and when we come back we will be introducing our guest we'll be right back Welcome back. It's time to introduce our guest. We have Riaz Phillips here with us today, but before he joins us, I'll share a little bit about him. Riaz Phillips is an award-winning writer, video maker, and photographer. Born and raised in London, Riaz is the author of Belly Full, Caribbean Food in the UK, 2017, a deep dive into the history of Caribbean food heritage across the country, for which he was awarded a Young British Foodie YBF Award. In 2020, he edited the Community Comfort, a collection of over 100 global recipes from cooks of immigrant backgrounds, raising funds for the families of COVID-19 victims in their own community. 
Also in 2020, he was awarded the K. Blundell Trust Award from the Society of Authors. West Winds, Recipes, History, and Tales from Jamaica is Riaz's joyous debut cookbook, the winner of the Jane Grigson Trust Award 2022 for New Food and Drink Writers. The first in a series of books exploring Caribbean culture, West Winds celebrates the sensational flavors of Jamaican cuisine from a refreshing new perspective. Combining over 100 delicious recipes with captivating essays on Jamaican food culture, West Winds is so much more than a cookbook. It's an ode to Jamaica and the diaspora, the people and their food. Welcome, Riaz, to the Yams and Yuka table. Thank you for having me. We are so excited to have you here, Riaz, because if there's one thing that we love here, it is food. So, yes. <laughs> so I'm really excited to just get to know a bit more about you. Um, and, you know, personally being of Jamaican heritage myself, that's doubly exciting for me. Um, so let's get into it. It would be great to know, to start off with, just to know what is a significant memory that you had growing up that you feel shaped who you are today? I remember writing about this moment I had in primary school, which is like the first school you go to at the nursery. And I had leftovers of like my mum's cooking and I took it in my lunchbox to eat. And all the other kids were like, what's that? Like, what is this crazy, like weird food you've got? Uh, and that was like the first time I realized like the food I've been eating at home was different to what other people ate at home. Um, and to that point, you know, I'd only really had interactions with my own family and some friends, but it's not something I really thought about deeply until that kind of moment in school. And I realized like, oh, yes, it's just, this is different. This is stuff that people don't know about. And I was like one other kid, his family were from St. Lucia and uh, he knew what the food was and we had that like little bond and I realized it was like this kind of you know it was this thing that was it was different and that was like a real inflection moment because then in turn I realized that I myself I'm different and my family are different from the other people in uh in the area something I knew but that was like one of those moments where it kind of hits home yeah and I guess food can really um unite people like you said with your St. Lucian friend mm-hmm. So um, I know that you spent some time living in Jamaica. So can you tell us a bit about that time that you spent there and what made of it and what motivated your return to the UK? Um, well, I've been to Jamaica a lot of times with my family. Like every, my mum made it a point to bring me there when I was born. Um, I've been going there ever since I was a kid. Um, and I had a gap between like when I was 17 and 27 where I hadn't been back which also kind of um, coincided with the time there was like a lot of political upheaval, um, a lot of serious crime and going on in Kingston. So myself felt like it wasn't maybe the safest time to go back. But after that kind of died down a bit, uh, I realized I hadn't formed my own opinions of Jamaica, really, like as a place for myself. Everything I knew about the place, everything I inherited about the place was from my family. It was always their ideas, what they told me, mm-hmm. you know, don't go here, don't go there, don't move this way, don't move that way, do this, don't do that. And eventually, you know, like anybody who, when other people tell you something so much, you want to learn for yourself. Um, 
And then, yeah, living in England, the weather's really crap in winter. So <laughs> that really spurred it on to be like, yeah, I want to kind of get out of England for a while and see what it's like to actually live in Jamaica. Yeah. So how long were you there? Uh, how much time did you spend there? I was there for about three to four months uh, every year. Nice. And then like a chunk of the year out there. Just um, fortunately, I was able to work a lot of freelance at the time, a mm. lot of freelance journalism, things like that. So it was kind of sustained to sustain me. Um, and obviously, because I work in and around food, it means that there's always some food going, which is a great thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that was it. I was kind of moving around a circle that I was already familiar with through my family, which was St. Anne, um, Ochi, uh, Kingston, and then Port, and, Port Antonio in between those two. It was kind of like that little triangle that I was moving around, mm. just kind of getting to know the place, um, getting to know the vibe, getting to know like the pulse, the beat of the place, like getting the route taxis, the route buses, eating mm-hmm. street food, just hanging out at bars, just talking to people. And just, yeah, exploring like a lot of the different cultures of Jamaica, which is one thing that I knew about, but kind of wanted to dispel that people think that's kind of Jamaica's this monolith where everybody listens to Bob Marley and everyone smokes weed and everyone does all these different stereotypes that people think about Jamaica. And I wanted to really like explore and experience all the different cultures that Jamaica has to offer. Mm, so what were, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you had your initial thoughts and perspective about Jamaica from your family and your the people you know influenced you. Mm-hmm. So, what were some of the things that you learned that were different from what you were told or what you were assumed growing up? I think the biggest one out of the gate was living with the Rastafari community. That's something that was always quite fringe in my family. Like I had one uncle who was a Rasta, and he was seen as a bit of an outlier in the family, like having dreadlocks. And it's ironic that people think it's such a pivotal part of Jamaican culture when in fact a lot of conservative families they kind of look at the Rastafari community as complete outsiders and you know even for them having dreadlocks is seen as a bit of a like a dirty like a no-no thing like a bit of a ruffian thing and uh, Mm. the idea of going even a day without eating meat is like completely crazy to anyone in my family and you know the Rastafari community don't eat any meat or fish well at least a large proportion of them don't um and so just seeing that side of Jamaica and Jamaican culture for me was like fascinating, seeing how they live a lot of times completely off the grid, self-sustainable, farming, farm-to-table food, like a lot of the things that are kind of really trendy in food now, mm. fermentation and preservation, a lot of people like the rest of our community and people who live up in the hills um, have been doing it for centuries. And that's something I really wanted to share that. Yeah, it's so interesting that they have been doing that for so long. And now in Western worlds, all those things are really, as you said, trendy, being spiritual, living off the land, which mm-hmm. is what, you know, cultures have been doing for centuries. Yeah. And I don't want to make it seem like pockets of Jamaica or the Rastafari community are the only ones in the world who've been doing that. It's just a point to say, like, I feel like, especially in England, there's this picture of Jamaica that's been painted Uh, and there's certain things about the country that feel like the British media have been in control of the image of Jamaica for so long and it's only recently that 
Jamaican voices, Jamaican diaspora voices are getting louder enough to the point to show the country for what it is themselves. Yeah, and that's really important uh, to have your own voice, mm-hmm. uh, which is why your cookbook is very exciting. I've seen a lot of, um, like you said, Jamaican voices coming through. Uh, even Shermaine Wilkinson that we had on the show earlier in the season, another one of those voices coming through as well. So, you know, in your time going back and forth to Jamaica uh, and, and, you know, from Jamaica to London, where is home for you? Where do you, um, wh- what is home? I don't know. That, I think about that a lot. And I think as time goes on, as I get older, the idea of home increases more and more. Mm-hmm. The point where, like, I always have this conversation with friends, not just Jamaicans or Caribbean black people, just anyone who's from a migrant background or anyone who's from somewhere different but grew up in a in a foreign place. It's this idea that you're both. And some people see it as like being 50-50, like you're half there and half there, when in reality you're, it's like you're a hundred of both. Mm. Like a hundred or even sometimes zero of both, depending on how you feel, you know, sometimes you feel like you're you have no connection to either place that you're from and sometimes you feel like you have a connection to both places you're from and you're kind of in this middle ground. Um, and so, yeah, the idea of home sort of becomes to me connected to friends and family. Um, and then again, as time goes on, friends and family, you know, pass away and then mm-hmm. the home, you know, it's just bricks and mortar. Once those people are gone, those bricks and mortar, they don't mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that even starts to question like what home is and where home means and what it is that makes this thing up that we call home. So it's a really tricky question. So that's why I find like me personally, I find solace in constantly trying to move around and not being rooted to one place because I feel at home in so many different places that I kind of just want to circle around them as much as possible. <laughs> and are there any other places besides Jamaica and and the UK that you feel are home as well? Yeah, I'd say the South, like the South of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think anyone who's Jamaican kind of has this web of family in places like Toronto, New York, South Florida, um, London, different parts of England, and my family is kind of like that. So. When my family left Jamaica in the 1950s, 60s, yeah, some of them went to Canada, some went to the South, some came to England. And so that's another place that I spent a lot of time as a kid growing up, going back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you dig into those cultures, which is a story for another day, you <laughs> realize how like, their roots are so similar and the foodstuffs that they eat and the way that they're prepared, things are just... So similar things like how Jamaicans eat callaloo. Our green, our collard greens. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, from Atlanta, so yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I know and you know, but then a lot of people kind of on the fringes don't know those things. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's really important to connect those dots, and because that's how when people get that familiarity, that's kind of what gets people into different foods that they they don't know about, or at least they think they don't know about. Yeah. 
Definitely. Well, it's so good to hear about your background and, and kind of what makes you you. So kind of moving into, you know, your creative life, what what inspired you to become a photographer and an author and a video maker? What shifted you into that space? Um, nothing was like really purposeful in the time, in the way that I know some people have these aha moments where they're like, yeah, this is what I want to do. But when I, when I was like 15, I was just like at a party and there was another kid taking pictures and he told me that he was getting paid. I was like, what? You're getting paid to do it. I just blew my mind that you could, you could get paid to take pictures. Obviously, we're coming from some backgrounds where it's like, you know, education and then masters and then, you know, become a scientist or a lawyer or a doctor or engineer, things like that. And it comes from, it comes from a good place in our families. You know, they just want that security. But as a result of like them being excluded from certain fields, and not knowing about it, they kind of passed that down to us, maybe unknowingly. Um, so in turn, we don't know about a lot of industries and professions and jobs. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was fortunate to grow in London is if you just kind of step outside your house and you can throw a tennis ball and hit a different industry or a different scene. Like it's only one email away or one flyer away. Um, so yeah, fortunately living quite close to central London growing up. I was able to easily be around a lot of different uh, different people, different scenes, different industries. Um, and so that's what really set me on that path was like that moment of seeing that kid being paid to do photography. And then he was telling me like, you know, his uncle or whatever is a fashion photographer and he gets paid this much. And, you know, when you're a kid and you're hearing about like, like hundreds of pounds, you're like, that's crazy. And so, yeah, that, and that kind of set me on the path. And in the end, I still did go to uni and do a master's just because I was also interested in that at the same time. I thought that is legitimately like what I wanted to do, like be in a suit and tie and do that kind of stuff every day. And I did it for two years and I kind of realized that I actually that specific flavor of corporate life wasn't for me. Um, I wanted to be doing stuff more creative, which is how I came to quit that job and do my first book. Nice. So what did you do your master's in? Uh, I did it in international relations. Oh, okay. With a a focus on like African Chinese politics and relations. Mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. that's what I was into at the time. And I'd also lived in China twice up before that point. Um, Amazing. Just because yeah, as a kid, I always had, I always had a real interest in like international cultures and just different places. Um, but then that also feeds into how I ended up in Jamaica, which was me essentially saying to myself, like, how can you go to all these different places in the world and you've never really touched your own where you're from, where mm. your family are from, where your heritage is from? Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting and something that um, 
people often do always keen to travel elsewhere but not always look into our own heritage and culture um so it's really fortunate that you've been able to spend so much time there and i guess you can use all those skills from international relations and everything that you do as well um working around the world um so you've got all these creative roles and you also mentioned journalism as well and which creative role would you say you enjoy the most and why uh oh right Writing, yeah, definitely writing, writing and researching books. Everything else is just to support that, basically. Right, right. And what is it about that that makes that um, more engaging for you? It's like just doing a real deep dive into a subject, mm-hmm. and then you know, it's like when you do research methods at uni, those kind of things where they teaching you like how to approach a topic, how to study it, how to make a bibliography and a list and get a stack of books and dive in. It's one thing to enjoy that when you're kind of doing a topic at school. But when that topic's literally about your own heritage and family, it's like illuminating and you're just reading pages and pages from a book and they're mentioning places that your family have mentioned and they're talking about things that your family do. And reading about you know, the lineage from West African slaves who say and talk a certain way, and then you know your auntie talks and does things a certain way that you can see a direct link to those things, and like it's just a joy to be able to get in that groove and just learn more. Especially when, for essentially like eighteen years of school, we're not taught any of it. Yeah, yeah, that is is always. Um seems to be the way that in the UK we're led to do our own research about that history. Mm-hmm. But it's so positive that you've been able to deep dive into that and get that information and those sources. Um, so we definitely have to congratulate you on your recent cookbook debut, West Winds. Mm-hmm. Very exciting to hear about. Um, Heather is applauding right now. Um, can you tell us a bit about it and also your largest series of books that celebrate Jamaican foods and culture? Well, I wrote the first book, Bellyful Caribbean Food in the UK, which was, as I said, like it was a result of a lot of things. Like my grandma, she passed away at the time she was from Jamaica, um, which leans into like me wanting to know more about my own culture and heritage because unfortunately I never really spoke to her about where she was from and her journey and sacrifices she made and when she came over but at the same time I don't think she ever really wanted to talk about it um but it was just that kind of wanting to know more about in that instance specifically British Caribbean Jamaican heritage about like what people did when they came here how they moved the communities that they forged the places they ate the places they danced um so that's kind of what that book was about it was just me meeting people from that generation and also my generation people who own food places bakeries cafes takeaways like whatever mm-hmm. just yeah talking to them about those things i just mentioned that was um yeah it was fascinating to learn all these stories but then everyone was like where's the recipes <laughs> and i was like this one's this like this is not what this is about um but yeah, everybody loves food. Not everybody loves cooking so much, but I think a lot of people are daunted by cooking, and I kind of wanted to 
carry on this kind of journey of dispelling notions about the Caribbean and Caribbean food, and especially in England, a lot of people seem a bit daunted by cooking it. They seem a bit phased by the different ingredients and things they've never heard of. Mm-hmm. When in reality, the fabric of Jamaican food in this instance, you know, we're talking about Indian ingredients, West African ingredients, European ingredients, uh, Chinese ingredients, like all the different like ethnicities that make up Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So I have this idea really that no matter where you're from, you have some kind of connection to Caribbean food, that you'll know something, you'll recognize something, something will be similar to where you're from. And so in that sense, using those recipes to kind of then also tell stories about those recipes, whether they're my stories or stories I've found or read or heard, again, you can use that to relate to people. And so that's kind of how I sat down and went around trying to create this work. Nice. That's really beautiful. And food is a very special type of language where you're bringing people together, expressing love through how you cook the food and how you present it to them. And it's what you said. It's like um, you can find something to connect to in all of those ingredients because it is that that mix of those cultures that came together to make yeah. Jamaica what it is. That's really or even if it's just something as simple as like the way you eat or something like having like a bowl of cornmeal porridge with a fried dumpling and taking that dumpling and ripping it and dipping it into the porridge is like the same as if you go to Ghana and you see the way they eat. Fufu. Like, yeah. yeah. Or like cocoa, which mm-hmm. is like a local millet porridge there, I believe. Mm-hmm. And they'll have like some kind of starchy dough and I'll tear that and dip it in and just like different ways of relating different foods I think is really important and interesting. Yeah. And in the uh, Southern black culture for us, it's cornbread taking, yeah, exactly. dipping it in the, in the yeah. green juice or mixing it, you know, with, with any of our other foods. Mm-hmm. So um, we love food. So that's where we're going right now. What's your yeah, favorite yeah. recipe from the cookbook? Um, or do you have a favorite? <laughs> I don't really have a favorite. I think one, that's probably the most important to me now in retrospect is the oxtail and butter beans. Because mm. that was, that's a recipe that I forced my mum to teach me. And uh, she actually passed away since I finished writing the book. So it was like mm. literally the last time we were in the kitchen together. Mm. Um, and I was like recording it on my phone and taking notes. And, you know, at the time, you never really thinking about like times like that and memories like that and thinking, you know, this is going to be the last time you ever spend with someone like that. Mm-hmm. But it was like a moment of just being really purposeful about just like trying to take that culture and preserving it and learning about it and taking notes and archiving it. So yeah, that was like a really important one for me now. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't have so many, most of the favorite ones. So yeah, I like that ones that I kind of forced my, my family to teach me because I don't know if you're, family like mine they don't do measurements and they don't do specifics like there's no tablespoons or mm-hmm. grams or milliliters mm-hmm. so it's really tricky to get people to give you the recipe and even if you record the whole thing it's never turned out the same as how they cooked it so no because it is always that experience of like 
feeling your ancestors while you're cooking, knowing yeah. exactly when it's time to stop, knowing the right smells or the right texture. Yeah. It's a living experience. So, yeah, and also you do have to just get things wrong sometimes. Yeah. That's how you learn. And also things don't always have to be uniform and identical every single time. Mm-hmm. Like one day you might overdo some seasoning, one day you might overdo the garlic powder, you know, it's just it's okay. Yeah. Whatever that, but you can always balance it out or made it too salty you can always throw some sauce on that you know there's always a way so it's another thing i wanted to just like break down that like fear for people who are cooking it for the first time mm-hmm. yeah and with your work you've raised money and given back to families who have experienced hard times during the pandemic mm-hmm. so your food goes beyond just you know passing that language down through generations, you're actually helping people. Um, and the work that you do is supporting others as they go through the hard times that we're all experiencing. Mm-hmm. So why was it important for you to raise money to support those communities? Well, at the same time, like, especially in COVID, kind of had like a mini depression. Mm-hmm. Like, I guess like a lot of many people, most people did. And then... I realized I was in quite a fortunate position, to be honest, even given everything that just happened. Like, I lost a lot of my work. And uh, even then, I was still in quite an okay position. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just, you have those times where you realize there's so many people, like, who actually like, really need help, whether that's financially, mentally, spiritually. Um, I just wanted to use my kind of position to just try and, help people it was also at the same time we had news come out how COVID specifically in the UK was impacting ethnic minority communities more than it was white communities like in terms of fatality rates illness rates uh, job losses like you name it from top to bottom certain mm-hmm. communities were just hit harder than others mm-hmm. um, certain communities being essentially the communities I'm in the ones I live around like um, my family, all my family, black, some of my family identify as Caribbean, but they're Indian and who are part of, you know, wider Indian community and also my friends as well. And yeah, just wanted to try and do something. And food is, as we always say, that it's something that everybody loves. Everyone understands, mm-hmm. like, especially in England or London. And growing now, people want to learn more about different foods and different identities, different stories. And it was just kind of combining all of that into something that might be able to help raise money. Yeah. And what did you learn from that experience of working and supporting your communities, working with and supporting your communities? Um, I guess it sounds cliche, but there's so much similarities between everyone mm. like i guess a lot of times we get really divisive over things that some in retrospect aren't that important and even going through the recipes you realize how similar a lot of things are and getting that feedback from everyone and you have like a colombian recipe and then somebody from pakistan who gave a recipe in the book reads the colombian recipe and they're like oh my god i can't believe we do that in colombia like we do that in pakistan and i was talking about cane juice 
and people were coming out from like Philippines and Vietnam and all kind of places that I couldn't imagine seeing like, yeah, we have cane juice like every day on our street corner. And then, so it's also like then connecting those dots on a bigger scale of like the world or at the very least the diaspora in the UK mm-hmm. and like bringing those communities together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are so many similarities, um, especially with food. I remember actually being in Thailand and drinking something that I was certain was sugarcane um, mm. and and just thinking about that being over the other side of the world there when I'm familiar with it from the Caribbean. Mm. Um, so, you know, that was a really um, an amazing and um, beneficial experience that you did that you were able to to overcome your own challenges and still give back and support your community. Cause as you said, it was such a challenging time, um, for yourself, as you've just said, and for everybody, and it would be good to know what keeps you inspired and who inspires you. It's a good question. Like I have to say like my friends, people I know, because I've always found it really hard to connect to like, celebrities and stars just because you don't know them you don't know their life you don't know their trials and tribulations that they go through you don't know what's going on at home like you literally know nothing about them apart from what they show whereas whereas you know you have a friend who you grew up with or you used to live with and you've seen what they go through um and then you see them prosper and achieve things you literally know where they came from uh, not to say you know everything about them, but you know, you've seen them in person, that like you know what it is. Like, it's like, it's like shout out to one of my good old friends. His name is Duval Timothy. Um, he like, he always played piano as a kid, but when we lived together, he kind of dusted off his old piano and started playing like keys every day and getting slowly better and slowly better. Uh, and literally just like last week, two weeks ago, I think he had, about four tracks on Kendrick Lamar's new album that he produced. And that's just like, you know, that grind and just sticking at it every day. And when you have positive people around you like that, when you can see how they move and see what they do, you can really relate to that. So yeah, definitely like a lot of my friends around me. Like there's obviously I've got people and books I read and kind of people who work in the same similar industries and the wider creative field who inspire me the same people I think you know inspire everyone Virgil Abloh and Nigel Slater and just like different people who are just like in the limelight of sort but I would definitely like always give preference to people I know mm-hmm. yeah it sounds like you have some really positive circles around you and just yeah amazing for your friend just putting in that work and then seeing it pay off with yeah. with such a high-profile album also in london there's always there's like a very big wide creative scene um unfortunately there's like a very supportive scene for black creatives as well sharing information on on chats and whatsapp groups and circling around information and jobs um and so from from the outside and just like listening to conversations i'd have to say that especially the black women creatives in london because i think they have 
a layer of yeah not to pander or anything but i just think they realistically just have like such an additional layer of challenges that i myself don't face like navigating so many different ceilings of like gender and identity and stuff like that um people like grace the doha grace the doja uh who's like works in the music industry uh irene agmontaine who works in like the fashion industry shamadeen reed again people like who i've seen in person maybe they wouldn't say they're in the place that they want to be but even to see them navigate those ladders is like inspiring for me yeah definitely but likewise i'm sure people look at you and have that same kind of thoughts and and look to you and and are inspired by your story and your successes so what impact would you like to have on the culinary industry in the uk um To be honest, I'm not too interested in being like pigeonholed into the culinary industry. Like I never kind of saw myself in it anyway, which is kind of weird how I found myself in it. Like because essentially all I really wanted to do was tell stories about the history and culture of where I'm from. And at that time, the best way I thought of doing it was through food. I still think it is. But... It's interesting because just like food history is so ingrained in the actual just overall history that I don't like to be separated out too much if I don't have to be. So yeah, the impact I'd like to have is just like that wider one of just spreading awareness about like where we're from, continuing to do that. Yeah, and just passing on those cultures and the heritage of of your people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Well, we're about to round up our conversation. And before we do, we ask all of our guests the same question. I don't know if you're familiar, but um, if you are, then you know what's coming. If not, then it's a surprise. Mm-hmm. So it's the title of the show. And we like to know which, which one do you prefer, yams or yuca? And how do you like it cooked? Uh, I got the yams. Yams, um, yeah, it depends. Sometimes there's nothing, all you have to do is just peel it and just put it into a bit of water with some, a bit of salt and just boil it. Sometimes there's nothing better than that, especially if you've got some nice sauce there on the side uh, to dip it into. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, but sometimes you like fry it, turn it into fries. Like it's so versatile. Mm-hmm. Pound it, turn it into mash. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a deep one. But I think, yeah, I'm going to have to go for yams. Yeah. Nice. And what's the perfect meal, including yams, then? Mm, probably Aital stew, Aital mm-hmm. sip, which probably is not one. It's definitely one of my favorite recipes to make that's in the book. Because it's like what goes into it is just trying to gather up as much produce as you can find which is like mm. a really beautiful experience when you're in the Caribbean. Either if you're lucky enough to be at a place that has them all right there in the back garden, or if you go to the market and, you know, getting a little bag of scotch bonnets, you're getting like a yam, you're getting some dashines, some callaloo leaves, some carrots and tomatoes and potatoes, sweet potato, just taking them all home and just cutting them up, peeling them, letting them stay in water while you get it the pot ready maybe you've got uh, some fresh coconuts you can bust open turn the meat into coconut milk 
and then yeah, just make a big, big veggie vegan soup. And uh, yeah, those soups. Then when you like cook that, that big, that big nice chunk of yam. I love that. Ooh, that sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking you definitely have our mouths watering, and I know our <laughs> listeners will be feeling the same. Oh my goodness. Definitely need that live show. Will you be doing a, a live demonstration of your recipes? Yeah, I get invited. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> Noted. Noted. Yeah. Okay, no. <laughs> but I mean, I'm definitely, yeah, very much keen to expand beyond just trying to bring that culture to the UK mm-hmm. especially like I said places like North America America and Canada I really don't think people appreciate just how similar those roots are and mm-hmm. just how like strong those links and connections are and you know you go on Twitter and people are arguing about like diaspora wars and saying oh like oh Jamaicans this is a Jamaican word and people are like no this is African American vernacular and and they're just sitting there like this is not important like we need to be celebrating the we're all the same people <laughs> so, they're so similar yeah, yeah. we be celebrating the, the links and the connections not the division you know? yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's it's it is interesting that people go into those especially with the music as well you know afro beats yeah, rest but... dance all you like it's really so similar there's so many similarities yeah. um but it has been wonderful learning and listening to you and hearing about your journey and what's brought you to to this incredible new book of yours and <laughs> please share with us how listeners can learn more about you and your work um, definitely I think one of the main places where I just like mental scrapbooks, probably Instagram mm. at Rias Phillips, which is, yeah, it's my full name. Um, YouTube, you can find me on YouTube as well when I'm in times of a bit more time freedom. We like to try and make some like vlogs and videos like that. Mm-hmm. Some short documentaries, which I find quite fun. So you can find me just typing in. Rias Phillips or Riri Travels on YouTube and have a very, very dormant TikTok account that I might start using soon. <laughs> um, yeah. When you start getting older, like the social media things just start becoming like really hard to use. Like you just like, yeah. You understand how your parents were when they first saw like a PlayStation or a GameCube or something. Yeah. You're just like, oh, I don't understand any of this. But yeah, I'm online in different places and I respond to. People got questions they want to ask me. I usually respond quite quickly. Nice. And the book is out now. The the cookbook is out now. Yes. Yes, in the UK. Okay. The American version will be coming out later this summer, and various translations. I think after that. Nice. Excellent. So if you're in the UK, go ahead, go grab Westlands, go grab yeah, wherever you can, anywhere you can buy books. Anywhere you can buy books, go ahead and grab Belly Full as well, so you can get a lot more of that cultural background and deep dive and exploration. And thank you so much, Riaz, for sharing your incredible oh, story. You yeah, your passion for food and your culture and yeah, for, for black people. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been really exciting um, having you join us today. So we're going to take a break to digest everything Riaz shared with us. And when we come back, it will be time to indulge in a little dessert. 
We are back and it's time for our sweet and savory desserts. We're going to recap those moments in the conversation that give us a sweet sugar rush or others that are richer, stick to the stomach and a bit more fulfilling. So let's start with my sweet moment, which was the fact that he said um, that he didn't really plan to be a chef. He wanted Mm. to tell stories. He wanted to tell stories about people um, and he thought what better way than and through the food. So I thought that was quite sweet because he he's really a writer, isn't he? So mm-hmm. um and he kind of uh kind of snuck the food in there to make it so to, to make it to make it come alive. So I thought that was quite a sweet, a sweet moment and how he managed to really do that because food is something that connects us all. Food does have a story, food does have a history. So it was a really clever way to kind of achieve his purpose. Yeah. Um, yeah, what about for you, Heather? Um, well, my sweet moments actually kind of in that same theme of connecting through food. And it was when he talked about um, bringing, when he realized that like the food that he eats at home is different and he brought his lunch in mm-hmm. and everyone's like, most of the people were looking at it like, what is that? But he did have one schoolmate that he bonded with in primary school because the food that they brought from home was different than everyone mm-hmm. else. And I just thought it was just a really precious moment of like, you know, when you're young and you're just trying to like make friends and fit in and, Mm -hmm. but also you're a bit naive about like, you just think that your life is, is normal. Like it's the way. Yeah. 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 Um, And then in that moment of just like feeling like other, um, he did manage to find someone to connect with and it was through food. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I just thought that was really, really sweet. Yeah, and that was kind of his younger years, and whereas the other ones are kind of old, older people. Um, so yeah. yeah, it's kind of full circle. Exactly, connections exactly. happening. Um, and what about your savory moment? Um, well, my savory moment was when he was talking about um, taking his passion for writing and like the skills that he learned in uni to really deep dive into his own heritage. You know, of all mm-hmm. the like like you said, he is a writer and of all the things that he does, you know, um, he is a chef, he does video content, but really at the heart of it, um, he, you know, he went to school for international relations and there was just a lot of research involved in that. And so he just took those skills to apply it to his purpose and his passion, which is to learn about himself. And I, I feel like that's something really valuable is when you can take, you know, learned skills and really pour it into learning about yourself and who you are and finding a piece of your identity and like making those skills really benefit you in a well-rounded way, like beyond your career, but also something a bit on a more personal level as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was my, what about you? Um, my savory moment was when he told the story about cooking oxtail with his mum before she passed away. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so that was just a nice memory that he shared, which obviously uh, was very significant for him and would have would be something that he'll always remember because, you know, it was just before she passed away. Um, so, yeah, so that was my, my savory moment because um, it was just a nice memory. It was, and it's yeah. nice and sweet, and it really touches the heart. So mm-hmm. with that, we could end our conversation for today. Mm-hmm. Thank you to everyone for listening. Please let us know what were your sweet and savory moments using the hashtag yams and yuca. That's right. Don't forget to tag us at yams and yuca on Twitter and 
at Yams and Yuka Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Alternatively, you can email us at Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. And again, that is Yams and Yuka Podcast at gmail.com. Yes, we want to always hear from you about today's conversation. Let's keep the discussion going. Feel free to add your stories to our Yams and Yuka Tapestry, and we will chat with you guys next time. Bye.